Chapter Sixteen of Flemington by Violet Jacob. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Chapter Sixteen, the two ends of the line. Three days afterwards, Watty sat at the gates of Ardgies and looked between the pale yellow ash trees at the house. There was nobody about at the moment to forbid his entrance and he drove quietly in at a foot's pace and approached the door. The sun shone with the clear lightness of autumn, and the leaves, which had almost finished the fitful process of falling, lay gathered in heaps by the gate, for Madame Flemington liked order. On the steep pitch of the ancient slate roof a few pigeons, white and grey, sat in pairs or walked about with spasmodic dignity. The whole made a picture, high in tone, like a water-colour, and the clean, etched lines of the stripped branches gave it a sharp delicacy and threw up the tall, light walls. All these things were lost upon the beggar. He had informed himself in Forfar. He knew that the place was owned and lived in by a lady of the name of Flemington, who was the grandmother of the young man from whom he had lately parted. He had learned nothing of her character and politics because of the seclusion in which she lived, and he stared about him on every side and scanned the house for any small sign that might give him a clue to the tastes or occupations of its inhabitant. Whilst he was so engaged, the front door opened, and the sound sent all the pigeons whirling from the roof into the air in flashes of grey-blue and white. Madame Flemington stood on the top step. The beggar's hand went instinctively to his bonnet. He was a little taken aback. Why, he did not know— and he instantly abandoned his plan of an emotional description of Archie's plight. She stood quite still, looking down at him. Her luxuriant silver hair was covered by a three-cornered piece of black lace that was tied in a knot under her chin, and she wore the calash or hood, with which the ladies of those days protected their headdresses when they went out. A short furred cloak was round her. She considered Watty with astonishment. Then she beckoned to him to approach. "'Who and what are you?' she asked, laying her hand on the railing that encircled the landing of the steps. That question was so seldom put to him that it struck him unawares, like a stone from behind a hedge. He hesitated. "'I've got news for your ladyship,' he began. "'I asked your name,' said Madame Flemington. "'What he cared,' replied he. "'Skirling Watty, they call me.' The countryside and its inhabitants did not appeal to Christian— but this amazing intruder was like no one she had ever seen before. She guessed that he was a beggar, and she brushed aside his announcements of news as merely a method of attracting attention. "'You're one of the few persons in these parts who can afford to keep a coach,' she remarked. A broad smile overspread his ribald countenance, like the sun irradiating a public-house. "'Oh, Dodd, my lady, I'd think shame to visit you on foot,' said he, with a wag of his head. "'You have better reasons than that,' she replied rather grimly. "'Ay, ay, they're both away,' said he, looking at the place where his legs should have been. "'I'm an ill-sicked for the Sotars.' She threw back her head and laughed a little. She had seen no one for months, with the exception of Archie, who was so quick in mind and speech, and the humour of this vagabond on wheels took her fancy. There was no whining servility about him, in spite of his obvious profession.' The horrified face of a maidservant appeared for one moment at a window, and then vanished, struck back by the unblessed sight of her mistress, 
that paralyzing, unapproachable power, jesting, apparently, with Skirling Vati, the lowest of the low. The girl was a native of Forfat, the westernmost point of the beggar's travels, and she had seen him often in the streets. "'You face life boldly,' said Madame Flemington. "'And what for now? Fags, greeting fills nobody's kite.' She laughed again. "'You shall fill yours handsomely,' said she. "'Go to the other door, and I will send orders to the women to attend to you.' "'Aye, will I,' he exclaimed. "'But it wasn't just for a piece that I came all the way from the Muir of Rossi.' "'From where?' said she. "'The Muir of Rossi,' repeated he. "'My lady, it was away yonder at the tail of the Muir, that I tell Master Flemington the road to Aberbrothock. "'Mr. Flemington?' "'Aye, yon lad Flemington, and a devil of a lad he is to take the road with. "'My lady, there's been a puckly fecting about Montrose, "'and the prince's men have gotten a hold of King George's ship that's in by Ferryden. "'As I gaed down to the town,' I keep it with Flemington in the road. He'd gotten a clower on his head. He was fighting down about in Spreok, he told me. Fighting? With whom? asked Madame Flemington, fixing her tiger's eyes on him. The beggar had watched her face narrowly while he spoke, for the slightest flicker of expression that might indicate the way her feelings were turning. He was fighting with Captain Logie, he continued boldly. A fell man, Jan. You'll ken him, your ladyship. "'By name,' said Christian. "'I'm thinking it was for him that he got the clower on his head. "'I gived him my good whisky bottle, "'and I got water to him for a well. "'I called him away from the roadside. "'He did not ken what would be after him, you see. "'And I guard a clattering old wife at the muirside, "'gives a shelter, yon nicht. "'I did not leave the callant, my lady, "'till I got a shelter to him. "'He's to Edinburgh. "'I telled him what would get him a passage to leave.' I'm an Aberbrothock man myself, he can. And did he send you to me? Aye, did he, said he, lying boldly. There was no sign of emotion, none even of surprise, on her face. Her heart had beaten hard as the beggar talked, and the weight of wrath and pain that she had carried since she had parted with Archie began to lighten. He had listened to her. He had not gone against her. How deep her words had fallen into his heart, she could not tell, but deep enough to bring him to grips with the man who had made the rift between them. "'Are you sure of what you say?' she asked quickly. "'And did you see them fight?' "'Nay, nay, but t'was the lad himself that telled me. He was on the ship.' "'He was on the ship?' "'Aye, was he, and he gaed out with the soldiers to deave they rebels for inch Brayock. They got the ship, my lady, but they did not get him. He escaped.' "'Did you say he was much hurt?' said Madame Flemington. "'Hoot! You needn't have fashed yourself, my lady. "'I was feared for him in the nicht, "'but there wasn't a muckle wrong with him when he gaed away. "'Oh, Dot, I wouldn't have left him.' "'He had no mind to spoil his presentment of himself as good Samaritan. "'So far he had learned nothing. "'He had spoken of the prince's men as rebels, "'without a sign of displeasure showing on Madame Flemington's face. "'Archie might be playing a double game.' and she might be doing the same, but there was nothing to suggest it. She was magnificently impersonal. She had not even shown the natural concern that he expected with regard to her own flesh and blood. "'Go now,' said she, waving her hand towards the back part of the house. "'You shall feed well, you and your dogs, and when you have finished you can come to these steps again, and I will give you some money. You have done well by me.' 
she re-entered the house, and he drove away to the kitchen door, dismissed. If Watty hoped to discover anything more there about the lady and her household, he was disappointed. The servants raised their chins in refined disapproval of the vagrant upon whom their mistress had seen fit to waste words under the very front windows of Ardgeys. They resolved that he should find the back door, socially, a different place, and only the awe in which they stood of Christian compelled them to obey her to the letter. A crust or two would have interpreted her wishes had they dared to please themselves. But Madame Flemington knew every resource in her larder and kitchen, for French housekeeping and the frugality of her exiled years had taught her thrift. She would measure precisely what had been given to her egregious guest, down to the bones laid, by her order, before his dogs. The beggar ate in silence, amid the brisk cracking made by five pairs of busy jaws. The maids were in the stronghold of the kitchen, far from the ungenteel sight of his coarse enjoyment. When he had satisfied himself, he put the fragments into his leathern bag and went round once more to the front of the house. A window was open on the ground floor, and Madame Flemington's large white hand came over the sill, holding a couple of crown pieces. She was sitting on the window seat within. Her cloak and the calash had disappeared, and Watty could see the fine poise of her head. She dropped the coin into the cart as he drove below. As he looked up, he thought that if she had been imposing in her outdoor garments, she was a hundredfold more so without them. He was at his ease with her, but he wondered at it, though he was accustomed to being at his ease with everybody. A certain vanity rose in him, coarse remnant of humanity, as he was, before this magnificent woman, and when he had received the silver, he turned about, facing her, and began to sing. He was used to the plebeian admiration of his own public, but a touch of it from her would have a different flavor. He was vain of his singing, and that vanity was the one piece of romance belonging to him. It hung over his muddy soul as a weaving of honeysuckle may hang over a dank pond. Had he understood Madame Flemington perfectly, he might have sung the Todd, but, as he only understood her superficially, he sang Logie Kirk. He did not know how nearly the extremities of the social scale can draw together in the primitive humours of humanity. It is the ends of a line that can best be bent to meet, not one end in the middle. Yet, as Logie Kirk ran out among the spectral ash-trees, she sat still, astonished, her head erect, like some royal animal listening. It moved her, though its sentiment had not to do with her mood at present, nor with her cast of mind at any time. But love and loss are things that lay their shadows everywhere, and Madame Flemington had lost much. Moreover, she had been a woman framed for love, and she had not wasted her gift. As his voice ceased, she rose and threw the window up higher. "'Go on,' she said. He paused, taking breath, for a couple of minutes. He knew songs to suit all political creeds, but this time he would try one of the Jacobite lays that were floating round the country. If it should provoke some illuminating comment from her, he would have learned something more about her, and, incidentally, about Archie, though it struck him that he was not so sure of the unanimity of interest between the grandmother and grandson which he had taken for granted before seeing Madame Flemington. His cunning eyes were rooted on her as he sang again. My love stood at the loaning side And held me by the hand The bonniest lad that e'er did bide In all the swayful land 
Darkness, but a bunny her to be seen from Pentland to the sea, and for his sake, but yester I sent my love from me. I give my love the white, white rose that's at my father's wall. It is the bonniest flower that grows where ilk a flower is brawl. There's but a brawler that I can for Perth unto the main, and that's the flower of Scotland's men that's fechting for his aim. If I had kept what e'er was mine, as I had given my best, my head were licht by day and sign, the nicht would bring me rest. There is the heavier heart to find, for fortune to air, as I, I sit me doom to mind, on him I see name Lad, gin ye fall by Charlie's side to rid this land of shame, there will not be a prouder bride than her ye left at him. But I will see ye where ye sleep from lowlands to the peat, and ilkenicht at murk I'll creep to lay me at. Your feet. You sing well, said Christian, when he had stopped. Now go. She inclined her head and turned from the window. As his broad back, so grotesque in its strange nearness to the ground, passed out between the gateposts of Argies, she went over to the mantelpiece. Her face was set, and she stood with clasped hands gazing into the fireplace. She was deeply moved, but not by the song, which only stirred her to bitterness, but by the searching tones of the beggar's voice that had smitten a way through which her feelings surged to and from her heart. The thought that Archie had not utterly broken away from her unnerved her by the very relief it brought. She had not known till now how much she had suffered from what had passed between them. Her power was not all gone. She was not quite alone. She would have scorned to admit that she could not stand in complete isolation, and she admitted nothing, even to herself. She only stood still, her nerves quivering, making no outward sign. Presently she rang a little handbell that was on the table. The genteel-minded maid appeared. "'Mysie,' said Madame Flemington, "'in three days I shall go to Edinburgh.'" End of chapter 16